0: And if you brought your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to open with me to the book of James. We are making our way through and studying the book of James, and we are, we are finding ourselves this morning in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we basically left off last week. I kind of got stopped in mid-stride in James chapter 2, verse 7, because time Got the best of me. Now, Nathan, I don't know if you can do a better house lighting than this, but I feel like I'm in some dim lighting and everything looks a little bit like I'm under a blue light or something. I don't know if it's these or the house light's not up the way they need to be. But if you can adjust that, I'd, it, would, it would be helpful for, uh, for sure. So thank you for uh, considering that accommodation. If you can pull it off. I don't know. Pre-settings and all, you know, how these things work these days. So James 2. I've titled it, Putting Aside Partiality, and it's part two of what we started off last week, and this morning we are going to see how partiality, how favoritism, which I mentioned last week, is nothing less than a form of modern-day racism uh, or culturalism. You know, when I think of racism, it's oftentimes, it's a unique conversation because Scripture, you know, we, we are those who view the world with a biblical worldview. We look to the Scriptures to understand the world, and it was um, Adam and Eve who were first created. And everybody else on the world has been populated from one blood, from Adam and Eve. And so uh, the idea that there are different races on, the, on planet Earth is a very unique conversation. Indeed, I think it's more of different cultures that have evolved as a result of Genesis 10 and 11 and the dividing of the languages into nations. And with the languages being divided, uh, there became different nations and there became different cultures that grew out of that. And then as people were spread around on planet Earth, the adaptation within the human species that adapted to the, the, the sun, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the darkness of skins as, they, as it varied across the globe and over time, those things indeed took place. So really what we do is we, we value our culture over and against another person's culture. We call that racism today, one race over another. But that's typically because we look at the world, the, the culture views the world not from a biblical standpoint but from a worldly standpoint. However, regardless of how you divide that pie and slice that up, partiality is a sin against God. And what James is going to call for this morning, what he's going to make reference to this morning, he's going to refer to that which is called the the royal law, which I'm going to call the law of love. It's a sin against God's law. It's a sin against God and his commandments to love our neighbor as ourself. Partiality is from a really long Greek word. I was going to look for a volunteer this morning that wanted to try to pronounce this one for me. Pastor Harkey could probably roll it off his tongue very quickly. I could do it slowly, but I'm going to save you that. It literally means to accept a face. We talked about that last week. It's the idea of, of accepting somebody on face value only. You see something, you like it, you show favoritism. You show partiality, I like that. You see this, I don't like that, no, I don't have time for you. That's the basic reality of it. It's to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. That's showing favoritism. It's to be partial. It's Thus, that's what partiality is, and that is a grievous sin against God. And we see from the book of James that some 2,000 years ago, this was a sin that, was being, that had to be dealt with in the church. This was an issue that was going on in the church some 2,000 years ago, and I would say that it's something that's obvious, very relevant for us even today, as it was inscripturated and then canonized. James was telling those to whom he was writing in the churches and the diaspora at the time that he was writing to put such sinful behavior aside. And I think another way that we could think of that is just it's, it's time to repent. It's time to take an honest look at our lives, at the reality of our lives, and it's time to repent. And as the scripture says, then there's a time to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because, as James made clear in verse 1, the sin of partiality is incompatible with Christianity. It's oil and water. It doesn't mix. Contempt for others because of birth, where they were born, their, their sex, their poverty levels, or, or their wealth levels, or their personal convictions, or any other classification that we could think of. Anything is utterly inconsistent with true biblical Christianity, and it has no place within the church of Jesus Christ. To hold the faith in the glorious one, as James is speaking of in verse 1 of chapter 2, has a direct application on how we both see and receive other people into our lives, and thus into our church. Because, and this is a cliche, but I'm going to say it because it's true, because all lives matter. The old song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And to say otherwise is a direct contradiction to the truth that all people are image bearers of the Almighty God. Amen? It's a direct contradiction to that which is so obvious. It's more obvious than the nose on your face. Because our God is the creator of noses, all noses, red or yellow, black and white. So partiality is sinful, and it needs to be put aside. Because, as we're going to see in verses 8 through 13, it violates the law of love. To love your neighbor as yourself. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. James writes, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, keep in mind, from verse 6, as I've got for you right here conveniently, James has already indicated that there was partiality being shown within their church gathering. He said in 2.6, but you have dishonored the poor man. You have made distinctions between the rich and the poor within your church, and that is sinful behavior. That's something you have done. So they were guilty of having become judges, as it says right here at the end of verse 4. They were guilty of making distinctions among themselves and of becoming judges with evil motives. And so verse 8 is a great and purposeful contrast to this, in order to make a very obvious and plain point. Look at verse 8 again. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, in distinction from verse 4 and verse 6, if you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So the contrast to partiality is loving your neighbor as yourself, and that, in Important distinction as it is here is that you are loving your neighbor and notice what it says right here as defined by according to God's Word if we are loving our neighbor as ourself it's going to be in accordance to Scripture so How we define what loving is, and how we define who your neighbor is, and what does it mean to love yourself, etc. All of these things are in accordance with Scripture. Meaning, it's not just there, it's not something that's just their fair game that we can kind of attach definitions to ourselves. It means that we go into the Scriptures and we take a peek and see what does it look like to love your neighbor. And one of the clear implications we see in the scriptures is that this idea of loving yourself is a very natural, intuitive thing that no one is seeking to harm themselves if they're in their right minds. No true believer in their right minds. I think of the demoniac who was put in his right mind as a result of having his interaction with Jesus. Believers are to be those who are in their right minds, and when we're in our right minds as believers, there's absolutely no room for partiality when the church is gathered, when unbelievers or visitors perhaps come into the local assembly, whatever color they may be, or whatever their dress may be, gold chains or not, it's absolutely a contradiction. We are to be those who are loving them instead, and the Scripture clearly defines for us what love looks like. Amen? I mean, this, is not, this isn't rocket science or brain surgery. This is really basic Christianity 101. And this is what the contradiction to partiality is to look like. James refers to it here as the royal law. And royal, if you will, just carries the idea of supreme sovereign, indicating the absolute and binding authority that the law of God is to have in the lives of his children. The royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. What James calls the royal law here is in essence the sum and the substance of the complete law of God, and he gets his teaching from none other than Jesus himself. When Jesus was being asked and somewhat tricked by an an attorney trying to get him to trip up over the law, asked the question, and we see it recorded in Matthew 22, beginning in 36. Teacher, this, this lawyer says, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says in verse 40, On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. The totality of the law and the prophets is summarized in these two great commandments, to love God and to love others. That's the royal law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul, when summarizing Jesus' teaching, as we see James has done in Romans 13, Paul put it this way, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The totality, the summation of all the word of God can be summed up like this. If you would just do this as believers who have been given the capacity to do this, you would be fulfilling all of God's law because you would never commit adultery, you would never harm somebody, you would never steal somebody else's stuff or even covet it. You would be loving others in such a way that makes the gospel of grace look amazingly beautiful because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is... The fulfillment. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Isn't that good? So James is saying at the end of verse 8, if you are doing this, he's writing to those within the church, the churches that are out in the diaspora, the churches, those individuals who we talked about in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you're doing this, if you are fulfilling the royal law, he says at the end of verse 8, you are doing well. It's impossible to show partiality when the law of love is the guiding principle in your life. But, verse 9, but, if you show partiality, you are committing sin And are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 9 begins with a first-class conditional clause in the Greek which simply indicates that there are those within the church of whom James is writing who are guilty of the sin of partiality as was previously mentioned in verse 6. And it could also be translated because of that, since. So instead of an if, since. But since you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law. Now, either way you read it, whether it's with an if or a since, it's the same essence. Another translation might look something like this, and it's italicized because it's implied right here. But if you show partiality and you are the clearly implied intention from the first class conditional clause that James includes in his writing of the scriptures, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, to commit sin, you are committing sin if you're doing this. If you're not doing this, you're doing well. But if you are doing this, you're committing sin, and, and sin is simply... A missing of the mark. It's, it's missing the standard that God has established. You're falling short of that. You're falling short of what God has, has desired for you as a child of God to be living in accordance with. You're falling short of that, and you're also a transgressor. So sin is the idea of falling short, and a transgressor is one who goes beyond a transgressor of God's word, of God's will, of God's standards, is somebody who goes beyond those things. They perhaps outreason God, or they're smarter than God, or really, if 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 didn't God really say it this way instead of that way? Well, probably so, and that seems to make more sense. Ergo, I go and do this. So, if you're not doing well, you're sinning. If you're not doing well against with the sin of partiality, you are in sin, and you are a transgressor and against God and him alone are you sinning. Now your sin also has an impact against those against whom you sin and so your repentance needs to be against God first and then against those of whom you have sinned. Showing partiality unequivocally violates the second great commandment according to Jesus According to the Apostle Paul, according to James, and according to John, and we see in John's gospel and epistles, of loving your neighbor as yourself. John says that if you claim to love God and hate your neighbor, he said the truth is not in you. That's the way John puts it. And failing to do this, failing to love your fellow man with equity and showing no partiality... James is going to say, makes you no better than the person who commits adultery or who commits murder. As he continues in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. That truth is taught in the Old Testament substantially. You can't just say, well, I do really good on everything, but I just have this one little area over here that I kind of trip up over, and it's it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, partiality, I mean, honestly, Let's be honest with each other. Let's think partiality, just showing favoritism against one person or another really doesn't harm them that greatly, does it? I mean, I'm not murdering anybody. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't steal something from their house. I mean, how bad is it really? And we tend to have a way of wanting to kind of categorize our sins, don't we? Don't we? Now, I kind of walk through that scenario, but we do. I just habitually speed everywhere I go and violate the, the laws of the land, but that's not that big of a deal, really. I'm not murdering anybody. Should I go on? I, I've got a few more I could throw out there. they are just basic ways where we can come com- become comfortable with the concepts of, of just sinning and not even thinking about sin and, and, and kind of being oblivious to the fact that we are Sinners tend to love ourselves. And so if we would just love others the way we love ourselves and cut others the same slack we cut ourselves, it's amazing the kind of uh, unity that we could potentially have, not only within the body of Christ, but within every human relationship that we have. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to try to be at peace with all people. So James is saying, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, and here he quotes from the commandments, do not commit adultery, also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, James here is picking, obviously, two of the more larger social concepts, the ones that we're going to think are the bigger sins, right? Bigger social impact in the communities in in which we live if we were to commit adultery than if we just showed partiality against somebody. And we're going to say that that, yeah, that the impact isn't as great. And James is purposefully identifying two very pointed and large, larger than life kinds of sins to equate, to show that if you commit partiality, you're just as guilty as if you committed adultery or committed murder. So stop downplaying the lesser sins from your own perspective, such as partiality and others, and think that you will get a pass from God because of it. That's in essence, I believe, what James is really trying to articulate in equating the the sin of partiality with other more graphic violations of God's Standards. And this is why James, if you remember, he related um, the sin of partiality to the thought life of that of having evil motives. He says, if you, verse, at the end of verse 4, if you are committing partiality, I don't know if I put that one in there, no, then you have evil motives. And I would be willing to bet most of us when we commit the sin of partiality of showing favoritism to one over and against the other based on the color of skin or whatever it may be, we don't even think about that. We don't even think about the reality that we have evil motives when we do that. And so the Scripture is a mirror, as we looked at in chapter 1, verse 22. This is a mirror in which we look, and when we look into the mirror of Scripture, we do not want to move away from the mirror of Scripture and forget the kind of person that we saw, which was a person that was in need of change, and who needed to take all of their sins seriously, such as the sin of partiality, the sin of what we oftentimes now call racism. And we need to think through how we are managing ourselves as children of God, because those are evil motives. And this is why it's impossible to do verse 1. It's impossible to be brothers, this says show no, but it's impossible to be brothers and to show partiality and at the same time hold the faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. It's a very literal translation, the Lord of glory The glorious one. It's hard to cling to the glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and just savor and just say, Oh, I savor that relationship, brothers, and at the same time be showing partiality. Can fresh and salt water come forth from the same fount? James, in a little bit, is going to say, Absolutely not. And this is why we must be doers of the word. And this is why in verse 12, James tells us so speak and so act. These are actions from the life, actions that you take with your life. He doesn't say so think and so believe just cognitive, just so think and so believe right up here. No, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Are to be judged. Will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this enters in a section in the the scriptures here that becomes somewhat problematic in our thinking because immediately in our Christian thinking, we say, well, we're not going to be judged because Jesus took all of God's wrath for us at the cross. And so when Jesus sees me, what does he see? When God sees me, he sees the blood covering of Christ. sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And this is what makes James' epistle right straw, as Martin Luther has once said. It makes it a little bit uncomfortable and it makes us squirm a little bit because Martin Luther gets into some aspects of the Christian faith that has impact with regard to one's freedom, freeness of faith, the free gift of faith. Because it's true that that as a true believer, we will not be judged for sin. But the Apostle Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that we will come before a judgment seat and that our, the deeds that we have done in the body will be measured out. There will be a judgment of the deeds done in the body. In other words, once you become a believer, you are going to be judged against a law of liberty. Now, true believers will be judged against the law of liberty. The clear implication within the book of James is that James is making the clear assumption that there are those within the church, though he's writing to those within the diaspora. there are those within the church, from his perspective, who probably are not truly saved. Nominal, maybe. Nominal Christianity seems to be kind of a... A norm of the of the culture these days everyone likes to kind of cling to that which will get them from the fiery hells and into the gates of heaven without question and James pushes us in to think about as true believers we are those who are to speak and act in light of the fact that we know that we're going to stand before a judgment of the deeds that we've done in the body, whether good or bad, and that's going to be a judgment that's according to a law of liberty. Those whom God has truly justified will be judged, not against the law of Moses, but against a much higher standard, which is, as James is articulating here for the first time, the law of liberty. Well, maybe the second time. The law of liberty. And the law of liberty is nothing less than the gospel of grace. That your life will be judged in accordance to or by or against the law of liberty, against the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace, when it impacted your life, if it truly impacted your life and there was genuine repentance and genuine belief, genuine salvation... It's that which causes you to grow and so speak and to so act in particular ways that were different than the ways that you once were speaking and acting as unbelievers. You follow me? This gets into a little bit of the the, uh, nitty-gritty here, into the weeds. Because the gospel of grace is that which has done something for you, right? What does it do? The gospel of grace has set captives free free from a law of sin and death. The gospel of grace, the law of liberty, set you free from bondage, free from judgment, free from punishment of sin. It liberates sinners from believing falsehood and deception. It frees us from the curse of death and eternal damnation. The law of liberty, the law of grace, is a, it's a great liberation from God over the lives of his children. And most beautiful of all is if those things weren't enough, the law of liberty has set us free from the bondage of a fallen and corrupt human will so that we now for the first time ever can freely from the heart, from our new nature, according to the new covenant, granted us in Christ Jesus through his gospel, can and will freely now obey and freely serve God from the heart. These are things that we can and will continually strive to do because our God and our Savior has deposited within us a seed, a gospel seed, a life-giving gospel seed. And he's also indwelt within us an abiding power, his indwelling spirit, by which all true Christians have been sealed and have been given power to walk out our lives in a manner that's worthy of that beautiful law of liberty, the gospel of grace. Paul said in Ephesians 1.13, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You were, at your time of salvation, sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise. This is why James <clears throat> excuse me. This is why James tells us to both speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Because as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have been set free, brothers and sisters, by the power of God from being slaves to a law of sin and death. And that's just factually true. You can create whatever straw man you want to create. And I've heard them all. But they're nothing more than straw men. It has to be in accordance with the scriptures. Paul tells us in Romans 8 too, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus might set you free, potentially can set you free, potentially can set you free so as long as you give him permission. I just want to know what the scriptures say. How about you? We add so many nuances to the scriptures to create straw men, potentially to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves, I guess. I'm not really certain, but that's what human nature does. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a fact. You are free from your bondage to sin. And now for the first time in your life, you are free to actually love God from the heart, serve God from the heart, and God has promised the Holy Spirit that abides in you and then seals you until the day of His redeeming you, He has promised that that which he began in you, he will perfect it. Who's going to perfect it? He's going to perfect it. He's not waiting on you to start doing more works and more works to try to make your life look better. He will perfect it. He's at work in you. Philippians 2.13, For God is at work in you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is something God began in you, and this is what God will complete in you. This has nothing to do with you getting on the treadmill of performance and becoming a very legalistic Christian trying to earn God's favor. When God has truly saved you, you have a new heart, and thus you have new affections and new interests and new desires, and you have been set free From the law of sin and death. So speak and so act as those who will be judged against that law of liberty. When your life gets held up to the glorious, beautiful, magnifying brilliance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, will it show that within your heart there abides a root? of the gospel. And that gospel took root within your heart. And everything else, everything else that, that is seen and spoken is simply the beautiful fruit that came from the abiding root that God put within you. You see what James is saying here? You need to do this, so do this, so do that, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So again, takes us back here. Prove yourselves doers of the word. Don't just be professional hearers, because if you are, you'll delude yourselves as a spiritual miscalculation of gargantuan measures. How do we know that? Because Jesus said the, the how you can tell. And this is obviously in the context, he's dealing. With, he's saying, be aware of false prophets. But the the contrast to a false prophet would be a true prophet, right? So if false prophets are are sheep's are in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they're ravenous wolves, then true prophets wouldn't be. And if false prophets are those that you can know by their fruits, then so also could true teachers of God's word be. So false prophets, the children of the devil, and those who are contrary to that, children of God, are obvious because of their deeds, you will know them by their fruits, by their lives. And the illustration that James gives in, that Jesus gives in Matthew 7:16 is that grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? And clearly, the implied answer would be what? No, it's not, because grapes are gathered from grape bushes, and figs are gathered from fig, fig trees. Everybody knows that. I don't have to convince anybody of that, right? But why are we always trying to convince people that unbelievers who've never loved God are really going to heaven because a long time ago they said a prayer? Why are we always trying to do that? It's the most unnatural thing ever. This is what it looks like. Every tree that bears good fruit, every good tree bears good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. That's just what they do. Lives bear fruit. Hearts have roots. We were born with a root of sin. It's called a sin nature. And so the fruit of our lives was sinful because we had a sinful root in the heart. Thank you, Adam, Eve. Thank you. But thank you, Jesus, that you came to redeem us and to set us free from that bondage of sin. And you've given us a new heart according to the new covenant. And now with that new heart, we have new affections. And so we have new fruits. And so good trees, God's children, we're going to bear good fruit. Bad trees, like the false prophets here, their lives are going to bear bad fruit. It's, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Why? Because the seed of the gospel abides in them. Are you saying, Pastor, that Christians can never sin? No, and that's not what this passage is saying either. We could, we could make this into an entire sermon, and we might next week when we get into James chapter 2, 14 and following, but this is how James is setting us up. He's setting us up for that, that great next section that Turns a lot of people on their on their ear, um, because faith without works is dead. It's a non-saving faith, because God's people, under God's timing, they will produce good fruit. And the false prophets, the trees that do not produce good fruit, they're cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a clear a clear reference to the fires of hell, in Jesus's teaching. This is what God will do with those who. Are false prophets those who are the unbelievers so then verse 20 let's keep it simple you will know them by their lives there's a root in the heart there's fruit from the root it's not the other way around you don't do the fruit first and then claim to have a root You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work hard enough to earn God's favor and his mercy. You cannot do it. It only comes as a result of his mercy and his favor. That's the only way you would ever want to walk in that freedom and desire to be pleasing to God. That's the only way. God has to act. And so, as I was saying, Jesus indicates down here there are going to be those who say and declare... um, well, Jesus declares to them, depart from me. But there, there are those who are going to be saying, Lord, Lord. So they got, they got the Lord part right on Jesus, his lordship. Lord, Lord. Didn't we do pretty, some pretty amazing things? In your name, and in your name, cast out the demons, and in your name, perform even miracles. And perhaps these things were true. But he declares to them, notice this, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Life versus lip service. Life service versus lip service. It appears that this was all lip service. Jesus knows the heart. And what your, life serv- what, what, what your lip service actually was, was the practicing of lawless deeds. That's your fruit. You will know them by their fruits. James is doing nothing more than the application. That's why I said most people think that the book of James is like a commentary on Jesus' teaching. People's lives will be discovered and known by the fruits that they bear. Thus, Romans 8:2 again, you have been, you, you work, this, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has... You have, if you're a brother or sister in Christ this morning and you've named the name of Christ and you've repented of your sin and you've looked only unto Jesus and you've clinged, clung to Him, it says you have been set free from a law of sin and death. You should experience within you and a recognition within you that you have new desires within you that were not there previously desires of desire, wanting to be pleasing to God, desires that want to practice righteousness. That should be evident. And you can do nothing to manufacture that on your own. It's all a work of God by his Spirit. And so I could clearly say, if you don't experience any of that within the bosom of the heart, and you recognize within your heart, all I really truly desire is to do my own self-will, my own interest, and the deeds I practice are lawless. That's why I kind of hide them from people. That's a great indication that you need to check your spiritual pulse to make all the more certain of his choosing and calling of you, brother or sister. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. And that's what James is going to say next week in James chapter 2. So speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty Douglas Moo said, God's gracious acceptance of us. This is another beautiful quote from Douglas Moo. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden for the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty an obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin and given us, in his spirit, the power to obey his will. Isn't that good? That's That's where it's at, right? That's what James is, in essence, saying. And so he leaves a very stern warning in verse 13. He says, notice, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. If you're living in partiality, you potentially are those who are showing no mercy. You're showing no mercy to the poor. You're showing no mercy to somebody who comes into your church from a different culture. They look differently than you. They dress differently than you, etc., whatever it may be. And you purposefully put them aside and say, go sit in that chair right over there, or how about in the back corner, or wherever that may be. He's just, put, he's just throwing this out there. Listen, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown mercy. This is what God does. God, tri- mercy triumphs over judgment. God mercifully saves the poor. God mercifully is going to save people from every race, tribe, creed, tongue, and nation. And they're all going to be gathered around the throne of grace one day, giving praise to the only Lamb of God. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Don't you want to be there? You want to be there? Yes. Then place your faith in Christ. Repent of your sins and trust exclusively in In Jesus Christ alone, who is the way, the truth, the life. And when you do that, it's evidenced through a changed life. Because when you do that, God does something in you. He plants within you the seed of the gospel. He takes out a heart of stone, and he gives you a heart of flesh according to the new covenant. And within that heart of flesh... There are new desires that love God, that love Jesus, and want to know him and serve him and be with his people and be with him around the throne forever, giving praises to him forever and ever and ever. He places all of that within you. You do nothing to earn that. You can't somehow coax that up. You can't somehow fan that into a greater flame other than what? Going to the scriptures and reading them and saying, I I long for this day. I long, come soon, Lord Jesus, and we fan that in the flame because our hearts are ablaze with the law of liberty, the gospel of grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that good? And this is the context. This is the context in which James transitions into the Proceeding context of faith alone, apart from works, apart from a transformed life, is dead. It's a non-saving faith. More on that next week. We're not going to delve into that just yet. But James sets the stage beautifully for indicating that those who have been saved, who have the law of liberty, the life of, of living in Christ Jesus that has set you free from the law of sin and death, those are the individuals who should be putting aside partiality. If you've been partial to somebody this, this past week or this past month or whatever it may be for whatever affiliation they may have, whatever sin it is that you hate, hate the sin, loathe the sin, but get the gospel to the sinner because, listen, brothers and sisters, we're all made in the image of God, and we know not who the elect are. But you are a conduit through which the beautiful grace of God can and should flow into the lives of anyone and everyone. Because people everywhere need the Lord. Everywhere. I sure did. And I'm sure glad that someone got it to me. How about you? Let's be those beautiful feet that take the good news of the gospel everywhere we go. So let's put aside the sin of partiality and instead fulfill the royal law of loving our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray.